The country of Indonesia. Do they like me in Indonesia? 100% confident Indonesia will prevail. Hello and welcome to Talking Indonesia. My name is Gemma Purdy. On the 6th of December, Indonesia's House of Representatives passed its long-awaited new criminal code. Revised and redrafted over a period of several years, the new code replaces the version adopted from the Dutch in 1946 in an act the current government describes as one of decolonization and modernization of the Indonesian nation state. Civil society organizations, journalists, and human rights activists immediately condemned many of the articles in the new code that restrict freedom of speech, the right to protest and express views deemed counter to the national ideology Panchasila. Women and other minorities are seen to be particularly vulnerable with new laws criminalizing access to abortion, sexual relations and cohabitation outside marriage. Senior researcher at Human Rights Watch, Andreas Hasono, expressed the disappointment and concern of many Indonesians when he said, quote, in one fell swoop, Indonesia's human rights situation has taken a drastic turn for the worse, with potentially millions of people subject to criminal prosecution under this deeply flawed law. How did it come to this? Why did Indonesia need a new criminal code? Who were the key stakeholders responsible for writing it? And what was the process and the impetus behind the creation of new and a return to some old laws which now curb Indonesians' hard-won freedoms? Is there still time to change it or is there no turning back? To answer these questions and more, my guest today is Bivitri Susanti from the Indonesia Gentera School of Law. Hello, Bavitri. Thank you so much for joining us on Talking Indonesia. Hello. Happy to talk about Indonesia with you. Before we get stuck into the details of the new criminal code, thought we could go back a little bit and you could tell us about the reasons why Indonesia has embarked upon this process in the first place. Why did Indonesia need a new criminal code? Well, we have to look back at the fact that even until now, because the new law will only be effective three years from now, we still have the unofficial translation of the Dutch inherited penal code applicable for any criminal conduct in Indonesia. So indeed, we do have to replace the penal code that is more than one century old. That's one thing. So the need to have new articles, new sanctions that are, you know, more relevant to Indonesia currently. So we have to update them. But that's one thing. The other thing is that actually since 1945, there's this new movement, of course, uh, to replace all laws inherited from the Dutch colonial period. But until now, we failed to replace some of the old laws and uh, one of them was the penal code. Okay, so very much about 
creating a criminal code or a penal code that is Indonesian and in updating and modernizing it. So when did the process of revising and redrafting begin? Is it back to 45? Is that when it started or more recently? Well, it started in the 60s. If we look at the general elucidation of this penal code that we just passed, it says that it started in 1960s in the seminar about replacing the old Dutch colonial period laws and all that. So yeah, it, it started very long time ago, but then it was only put on the table in 2015. Before that, there were some occasions when the government declared that, oh, we, we drafted this again. And then I remember during President Yudhoyono period, also the government said, oh, we are doing this again. But then it was really sent to the House of Representatives in 2015. So that's when they started it. And then they stopped in 2019 because there was a big reformasi di korupsi movement or protests. Probably I wouldn't say it's a movement, but it's a protest. And so they they stopped the deliberation of the bill in 2019. And then they started again around 2020. And then uh, we have it now. Yeah. Okay. So stopping and starting and a long period of buildup in there. Tell us a little bit about the process to get there. Who are the stakeholders? Who are the lawmakers involved? According to Indonesian constitution, the lawmakers are the House of Representatives and the president. But because this is the initiative from tens of years ago from the government, then it was really initiated, drafted by the government, the government team to be exact. So the team consisted of law professors, especially professors on criminal law. That's the main stakeholder. I mean, really, the leading people are these law professors. And then when they started to discuss the draft penal code, it was mostly by the government, not by the house, probably because of its technicalities. I mean, it's really, you talk about, you know, the types of, penalties you could have. This is like the mother of our criminal code, including anti-corruption law and anti-terrorism law and sexual violence law. Everything will, at the end of the day, look at this penal code because this penal code consists of two books. One is about the general principles of criminal law in Indonesia. And then the second one is about the criminal conducts. So the main people are these law professors. And then, of course, we must talk about the civil society groups. So there is this big, we call it National Alliance on the Reform of the Penal Code. consists of scholars like myself and then NGOs and other civil society members, including the media, like the Independent Journalist Alliance is also a member of this alliance. So yeah, basically these are the stakeholders. Right. So those groups were all able to have input and comment on the drafts. To provide input and comments, yes. But for the comments and inputs to be included, that's another issue. Yeah, you know, because we started this since around 2015. So there have been many research reports that the Alliance have produced. And there are also some concrete input. I mean, whenever the House of Representatives and the government say that you shouldn't just, you know, talk in public uh, without giving us concrete, constructive input to the draft, then there we went. We actually came up with 
alternative articles to, to some articles that we believe are not necessary or should be changed. We did those things, but then, yeah, not all of our input was inserted into the draft law. Not all, but some? I would say yes. I would say yes, because uh, one example would be some small articles. I would say small because they are really not necessary. And this is what our point was. Articles, for example, regarding animal trespassing. Again, from the Dutch colonial period. So they finally deleted that article. Some articles related to animal, <laughs> like if you upset an animal and then the animal creates unpleasant situation. There was an article like that. And we said, if you want to modernize, a criminal code, this kind of article you shouldn't have in the modern criminal code. So th yes, they deleted that article. That's just one example. But the ones that are actually really matter for Indonesian democracy, unfortunately, are not accepted. So our input about the insult to the president and vice president, for example, we talked about this since very first time because it was also already nullified or declared unconstitutional by the Constitutional Court, but then they still have it in the penal code. Right. So this was a process over many years of going back and forth and, and your team or the group that you're involved in putting in a lot of work and looking at the detail and providing recommendations. I imagine it's kind of frustrating for you right now to be in a position where, well, here we are discussing what has been described as a highly flawed new set of laws. Perhaps you could explain to us where you see the particularly problematic areas within this new penal code. Well, there are quite still many issues, at least 18 issues that we still see. I mean, I have to give credit to my colleagues, especially those researchers in the ICGR, for example, who did really very meticulously look at the 624 articles of this penal code, and then we just helped them to review some of the reports. Probably I should start actually with my helicopter view about this penal code, because the government always says that this is the departure from colonialism. But I would say this is a failure to actually depart from colonialism. Because colonialism, of course, is not about only having foreigners here to exploit the land, but also about democracy and also how do you perceive public order, for what purpose. In the colonization period, the colonial government would perceive public order as something needed for them to exploit the land. But uh, nowadays, it can be used also for curbing democratization movement and human rights and anti-corruption and all that. So in that regard, I think this is a failure of the departure of colonization. And that happens because of two things. The first one is the group of articles that are actually reintroduced in this penal code. So I mentioned before about the insult to the president and vice president. It is in the Dutch version of the code. But then it was nullified. Uh, it was declared unconstitutional by the Constitutional Court some time ago. If I'm not mistaken, it was 2010. But then it was put back again with the argument that, oh, this is a different way of putting it into the, to the wording, to the norm, so that it's not against the Constitutional Court decision. So it was reintroduced. They found a way around the Constitutional Court decision to reinsert it. Exactly, yeah. Tricky. Very tricky because 
they would argue, look, this is something that it's really, really, really hard to to implement because the president or vice president themselves who can report that to the police. Yeah, but then the question is, are we creating a system or do you want to depend on how kind our president and vice president is? How can we depend on you know uncertainty if at some point we will get a president that is so sensitive in terms of feeling, then he or she will always report everyone who criticizes them as you know insulting them. Then we won't have any freedom of expression. And then there's also article about going to protest without uh, prior information to the authority and creating some chaotic situation or preventing delivery of public services. Uh, that's also punishable. Only for six only for six months, Harriet in jail, and uh, they would say, "Look, this is only about informing your rally or protest. So this is not against human rights. If we only see the wording, that's correct. But we have to see the reality that uh, even since 1999, when we started to have the law on the freedom of expression, the wording is always information to the authority. But in practice, it's treated as permission to rally because in the streets the police will always ask so where's your receipt that you have submitted your information to the police failure to show the receipt means we have to dismiss the rally so my point is this can easily be used to prevent any protest in the streets now that kind of article it was article 510 and also 511 of the Dutch version of the penal code, but they were not effective since we have the law of 1999 about freedom of expression. But then they put that back again because the articles that I mentioned in the new penal code is actually the same as the old version or the Dutch version of the criminal code. So th those are just two examples. And then I mentioned about the new newly introduced article. This is very interesting. There's this article saying that it is prohibited to disseminate ideologies against Pancasila, the five principles of the national ideology. So it mentions clearly about communism and or Marxism-Leninism, but it further says ideologies against Pancasila. So this is actually worrying because then what's the interpretation of against Pancasila? If we push for human rights, for example, is against Pancasila. So yeah, this is uh, an example of the newly introduced articles. And the language is so ambiguous, as you point out. Yeah. The clarifications are not there in order to explain exactly what it means. And so what is the risk then of having such gray area? Yeah, the risk is, of course, the very wide interpretation. And again, then we really depend on the law enforcement agencies and also, uh, yeah, basically the government at one period. So if you have an authoritarian government, then anything can be deemed as against Pancasila. LGBTIQ, for example, it can be, if one wants that, it can be deemed as against Pancasila because Pancasila is very broad. Pancasila is wonderful exactly because it's very broad. So it shouldn't be used as parameter of conduct. So, so this, is, this is the risk. Have you got any idea why the lawmakers 
felt that they needed to include such a broad prohibition? Where do you think that impetus has come from? I believe, first of all, there is still this sentiment against communism. I mean, worldwide, it's really obsolete, right? But I mean, it, that the uh, remainders of the Cold War. But in Indonesia, usually uh, the activists would actually uh, joke, <laughs> make jokes about in September, usually there would be something about what happened in September 1965 about the uh, communism. So there are still groups that want to keep that alive, want to keep that as ghost, we call it. Imagination that there is still communism and that's really against public order. But that's one thing. Another group, I would say, just people who just want to have, how do I put it, traditional values or conservative values. So they want to keep public order and morality according to, to the majority. So with having this ambiguous kind of article, then they could easily, as I said before, probably they want to really eliminate LGBTQ thoughts or any kind of parade or anything. Or uh, And then there's also another group of people who see terrorism as a threat, which is correct, but the way to put it in the penal code is something that we need to discuss if this if this is too ambiguous. But there's also an argument that we need this kind of article because terrorism and hardline Islamist group is considered to be against Pancasila. So just put it in the penal code. Yeah, so I think that those are the, the discussion behind this article. So it's a big catch-all article, isn't it? It can catch a lot of different groups, very diverse groups, but the ones that aren't stepping in line with the nationalists, perhaps, and the more moderate Islamic groups. Well, we in the West, outside Indonesia, obviously, our media has been very focused on the moral policing component of the new criminal code. Can you take us through that a little bit? Yeah. Many always focus on the cohabitation articles, but later on I would also point out the living law article <laughs> because that's also as dangerous, I would say. First, the cohabitation article. So there are two articles about sex outside marriage. One is if one of the couple is in a marital relationship, which says that any kind of sexual relationship outside marriage is prohibited. And the government always clarifies that, look, this is, we call it the leak aduan, yeah? only certain people can report that. That is correct. There is this further paragraph saying that only a family member can report that. These are the so-called complaint offences. Yeah, complaint offences. But I need to comment on two things. The first is in terms of technicalities. It's true that only certain people can report that, but the wording actually says that, how do you put it in English? Penuntutan, yeah? So one can report that, anyone basically, but then the case won't go up to the court if apparently the ones who report them are not family members. So it is possible for a non-family member to play yeah, some It is possible, but then the prosecutor won't be able to take that to court. 
So I said technicality because uh, we have to understand the context of Indonesian law enforcement agencies uh, because unfortunately we still have corrupt law enforcement agencies. So it could happen that something like this can just be reported and you will have the status of suspect, but then you won't ever go to court because the law prohibits that. That's true. But on the other hand, to have the status of suspect is also something really unpleasant because then you cannot, for Indonesians, for example, very often, whenever you want to go for public official position, then they would ask for a letter from the police that you don't have any kind of offenses. So obviously then you cannot get that kind of letter for Indonesians, obviously not for foreigners. Yeah. Uh, that's that's one thing. But the second thing, and this is probably will touch the issue for the foreigners, I would say even to have that in the modern penal code, then we'll put the perception that it is against the law, so it can create persecution by, you know, taking the law in their own hands, the, the society. So there will be perception that, oh, this is actually a conduct that is against the law. So, yeah, we can we can take the law into our hands. Uh, that's one thing. And then I mentioned before about the living law article. Yeah, this is really important, right? This is right up the top. It's Article 2 or so. Yeah. So, as you said, it's on top of everything. It's Article 2 of the Penal mm. Code. Mm. It says that basically it recognizes law that is still considered living in the society. So basically whenever there is a living law in, in a place, this penal code also recognizes those law as a criminal law, part of this criminal law. As if they were written in the penal code. Yes, as if they're written in the penal code. And of course, again, there is moderation. So if you talk to the government, they will explain further that there are some parameters for this, some corridor, that it, it should be uh, according to Pancasila and the, and the Indonesian constitution, and then it should be regulated further in the government regulation. But then again, this is like a Pandora's box. This is like an opening to something that probably we won't be able to control later on. Because we understand that politically, the government still cannot prevent a number of local regulations that are discriminatory against women or really about the morality of according to the majority religion in some provinces. One example would be Aceh. Many already voiced their concern that canning in Aceh is of course against the human rights. But can the government, the central government, do something about this? Because the fact is that it was the political decision from the central government to give Aceh this kind of regulation. So, yeah, so this is what we are afraid of. The government always says, don't worry, we will have the government regulation to make sure that this won't be against human rights principles, constitution. Yeah, but then again, this will be another political process. So I'm afraid, just to give one, uh, probably it, it will be important to, to provide an example. If in one province there is a local living law that says that one, again, uh, sexual, out, uh, sexual relationship outside marriage is punishable to, let's say, three months in jail, that could then be applicable to, to anyone, subject to what government regulation 
the government will issue later on. But still, this is Pandora's box because I should mention a data that Komnas Perempuan, National Commission for Violence Against Women, they published research saying that more than 400 local regulations are discriminatory against women. And the government cannot do anything about this because since 2017, Constitutional Court already says that the government cannot nullify or take down any local regulations if that's against the national policy. One can only go to the Supreme Court to challenge that kind of local regulation. And then we still have question again about the Supreme Court because some time ago there was local regulation in West Sumatra saying that all school children have to wear headscarves. And then there was ministerial regulation saying that we cannot have such kind of local regulation. But then the ministerial regulation was brought to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court says the ministerial regulation is wrong so the local regulation can still be applicable. That's one example of how the Supreme Court is so unpredictable and influenced by, you know, the majority. Yeah. And as you said, it's extraordinary to imagine the power that is now in the hands of local magistrates, judges, police enforcement. And then, as you say, what is the recourse for people if they seek to challenge? It's going to be very difficult. And you can imagine a court system that cannot cope if everybody sought to object. That kind of does bring me to my next question. We could talk for a long time about the many articles in the new code that are problematic and I encourage people to go and read more about it. But I really want to hone in on the next steps a little bit. Mm -hmm. And people may have heard that the Minister for Law and Human Rights, when asked and questioned about the inconsistencies in the new code with regards to human rights and civil liberties, responded with, take it to the Constitutional Court. Now, I know that you follow this very closely. You have written about this and commented on it. What do you make of this response? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, this is an important issue. This is important because the government and politicians have been saying this kind of narrative the past four five years because this is not the first time they said it they said it on the job creation law they said it even on the revision of the anti-corruption commission law at that time basically any laws now there's this approach i would say this is um, this is my take on this there's this kind of approach as if the lawmakers can do anything they want during the deliberation and then if people don't like it then just go to the court as uh, treating the court as the next step of lawmaking process which is absolutely not because the court is something else uh, obviously and I think they have this arrogance is one thing but there's also they're too confident and why they're too confident about the court I think it's because they believe that they have control over the court now. I should mention that some weeks ago, actually one of the nine constitutional court justices was fired, was removed from his office by the House of Representatives. And one of the leadership of the House actually said publicly that they do that because they believe the court uh, has been nullifying too many decisions, political decisions of the House of Representatives, meaning basically they already deemed too many laws unconstitutional. That's not about that one justice, but that's a threat 
through the independence of the judiciary, especially constitutional court. And worse than that, Gemma actually very soon they will discuss a new, well, the revision, the fourth revision of the constitutional court law that will allow that to happen at any time. So that's really a big threat to the constitutional court. Yeah, so so given that situation, I would say there is big uh, distrust now to the constitutional court. I mean, I would still go to the constitutional court in any case, but but then the likelihood that there will be a good decision in terms of the constitutionality of law is very minimal now. Appointments will be politicized if they're not already. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and you've pointed out elsewhere, Vivi three, that the head of the constitutional court is the brother-in-law of the president. Yeah, that's really big conflict of interest. From the first place, he should step down, but unfortunately, probably not too many people talk about that. So there he is still there. Yeah, you know what we're talking about, and you know, for ordinary Indonesians day to day, this is not a concern for them who's sitting where in the constitutional court or even really what the DIPA air are doing. But do you think that given the changes and some of them are really going to touch people's private lives in ways that they haven't before, do you think that there is going to be a pushback against this? Well, there should be, but it's it's a challenging situation at this moment because back to the first issue we discussed, the, the government always says that this is a big departure. This is, uh, they call it Karya Anak Bangsa. So finally, Indonesians themselves can make their own, you know, code. So there's this nationalistic kind of approach. And they also, uh, there's also a report already that uh, the government also hired some social media influencers to talk about this, to spread out the narrative about the, the nationalistic view on this law. So not many people understand what the real impact this law will have on their lives. So there's still big homework for yeah. uh, many activists, uh, human rights activists, uh, anti-corruption activists to disseminate the idea that this actually will have bad impact on you. Yeah, I mean, the, yeah, the challenge is great. And I noted that just in the last day, Due to the international response to the criminal code, yeah, you know, the UN has objected, the Human Rights Watch. And in response, I've seen, I've noted that, you know, there's this real kind of pushback. It's like, don't you tell us, which is quite right, how to run our country and, you know, this is our, these are our sovereign laws, which is fine. But it doesn't help your cause, does it? Because it kind of allows them to turn around and, and play that nationalist card even more yeah, your homework is significant, but the good thing is, yeah, that you have time. As you said, this is not implemented for three years. Yeah, it's only effective uh, three years after now. So uh, the government says that uh, within these three years, they will do socialization and then prepare the implementation of the law, which is good. And I mean, I believe the civil society then have to make use of this three years period to negotiate again. There is still, of course, a chance to revise law. But I would say we also have to be cautious about the fact that in two years' time, we will have general election. <laughs> so next year is already the, the what we call the political year will start very soon. Next year is only a few weeks from now, two weeks. Uh, 
So it will be challenging again. And there's this lame duck legislative again for an, another two years. And then the new government 2024, probably then new configuration of uh, politicians. So we have to negotiate again, start again from the beginning. So we shouldn't be, you know, happy too much about this three-year period. Yeah. But as, as an advocate to uh, policy advocacy, I would say at least we still have this window. Yeah, the window. And but you know, in terms of yes, the the um election and already people are campaigning as you know. Yeah. Um but is there do you see an ally anywhere Bavi3 among those who are the contenders that you know we're talking about for the leadership. Jokowi disappointed in so many ways those who are advocates for civil liberties. Is there anything, any glimmer of hope? No, no, not yet. Because unfortunately, what they call as campaign is only showing up their faces. They don't discuss issues. So we don't know yet whether the new, well, there are still candidates, their, their names came up in surveys, but none of them really talk about real issues. They only negotiate. To the party so we don't know their take on their position on civil liberties their position on human rights and anti-corruption movement no we haven't seen any of those yeah okay so if no one wants to stick their neck out early yeah. and talk about policies and issues yeah. uh, and until others do that i mean bavitri this is a, it's a kind of depressing conversation we're having andreas hasono from human rights watch spoke last week very emotional about the impacts of this for the next generation of Indonesians, etc. But it's not come out of nowhere, has it? You have been following it and writing about these things for a long time. I noted that you wrote something in Compass at the beginning of this year where you were asking the question, who are laws made for? What does the Deeper Air do? What is the point of it? Yeah, so we frankly have predicted this already, but then still again, it is still a sad news when it uh, came up. So there's there was big hope that Indonesia is really going towards democracy, especially after Joko Widodo was elected. Yeah, but then apparently there's this new, uh, not, well, not new, there is this approach of developmentalism again. So just like Suharto era, um, and developmentalism also means that the ones who are against development should be shut down, right? And that means freedom expression should be prohibited, and then uh, laws should be made only for furthering the so-called development. Although then we have to question. So. What kind of development are you talking about? Is this only for the uh, purpose of the oligarchs or for, for the society? Because the fact is, despite the very big royal wedding that we just had <laughs> in Jogja and Solo, where how many? I think 57 private jets are going around the, the air <laughs> during that uh, period. But at the same time, we still have stunting, you know, in Papua, in. Um, East Nusa Tenggara, and uh, we still have big job cuts this month, but coming also next month. 
And it's much easier now because we have the job creation law that is apparently not for creating the job, but for uh, getting more benefit for the oligarch. So this is what's going on now. And this is why then the penal code really fits in to, to everything because then we will have more public order and uh, morality values according to the majority. So, yeah, this is what's going on now. Mm, yeah, that wedding was something to behold at the weekend. <laughs> and as a final note, tell us who, who was the family spokesperson for the Widodos that, for the event. <laughs> the Constitutional Court uh, Chief Justice himself is the spokesperson because he's the brother-in-law of, of the president. It's such a great symbolic representation of Indonesian the political and, you know, the, the judiciary, how intertwined they seem to be currently. And like you say, you know, that event with all of the political elite, the social elite and the judiciary assembled together at a moment where this law has been signed and the individual rights of Indonesians will be curtailed. It, it's, yeah, it's quite a moment. Someone could write a book about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is funny that actually I got invitation as well to solo. <laughs> my, my name is probably still in the list of the state secretariat or Pak Mahfud's um, list. I, I didn't go. I don't have private yet to go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you should have written a letter to decline and explain why. I'm too busy doing interviews about this law that you've uh, yeah, 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 yeah. That's, that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Write that. Well, thank you so much for your time and for this discussion with us. You know, there's so much more to talk about. So I hope we get the chance to speak to you again. So thank you so much. Yeah, I'm happy to speak about many things. That was Bavitri Susanti, Deputy Chair and Lecturer at the Indonesia Gentera School of Law. Bavitri is a frequent columnist and commentator on constitutional matters in Kompas and other Indonesian news media. Talking Indonesia will return in early 2023. Remember, you can find the entire Talking Indonesia podcast archive at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog. Subscribe via iTunes so you'll never miss an episode or find us via your favourite podcasting app. Until next time, this has been the Talking Indonesia podcast. Thanks for listening and bye for now.